Your source for community. Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine. The Bay, 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental. Keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. I'd bet that you drive a car or been a passenger in one. So you'll know depending on the season, how that experience can be impacted by snow conditions, traffic backups, an accident, road construction, perhaps a washout. However, if you time travel back a century now into the era of the roaring 20s, the automobile revolution is beginning to roll out in Muskoka. Oh, and your car problems are not at all the same. Frail motor vehicles are traveling over rugged roads. Your driving adventures are harrowing. Delays are plentiful. Your car often breaks down. Worst of all, roads are impossible, some even impassable. Our last program was about early cars and the automobile revolution spreading into Muskoka. So now we absolutely must focus on that monumental problem of roads. Actually, I should say problems, plural. There were plenty. First off, the rugged and unyielding Canadian shield, Muskoka landscape's basement rudely defied road builders. With ravines, cliffs, meandering rivers and creeks, dense forests, swamps, gigantic boulders and mud, huge embedded stumps, swarming clouds of black flies and mosquitoes, construction here did not compare to rolling out roads like runner carpets on the prairies or southern Ontario. In fact, Scratching out any route at all was such a problem that Muskoka's roads were outrageously bad because that's the best they could be. The second problem related to that. Because overland travel was so difficult, even when walking or riding horseback, settlers used waterways as the primary way to get around. Rivers and lakes offered them the same reliable pathways First Nations have been using since time immemorial. From ice out in spring to freeze up in winter, Muskogans traveled by canoe and every manner of boat, including big steamers. In winter, the same routes were still better, first with snowshoes and toboggans, then as winter roads for motor vehicles, and next snowmobiles. You see the problem year-round reliance on flat, continuous highways of water meant no particularly serious attention went to roads. 
Third, after the steam era introduced railways, uh, railway trains to Muskoka in the 1870s, they became the new best means for passenger travel and freight transport. Muskoka's vacation land economy began to boom once steam trains combined with steamships. See what happened? Muskoka was progressing, even prospering, despite not having any good roads. And it wasn't just with the vacation economy. Logging and sawmilling operations, another of Muskoka's economic pillars, also relied far more on watercourses than roads. Muskoka could do well with just a few roads, even bad ones, until the automobile arrived. That, as they say, was the game changer. fourth problem was that road building, oh boy, was in the hands of local government. The province was hardly in the picture. The original colonization roads into and across Muskoka were built in the 1800s by Ontario contracted work crews. But otherwise, the province was hands-off. Townships made roads only where they had to. And could afford to. Muskoka's many sparsely populated townships, with little money but plenty of rugged terrain, did their best. That meant meager, often treacherous roads. Once a public road had been put through, it was a legal requirement for people living nearby to maintain it. This was a fifth problem. Statute labor, enacted by Ontario's legislature, required several days of labor from men each year on road work without pay. Municipal councils hired road inspectors to enforce this mandate for road upkeep. If some people today resist public mandates to deal with a pandemic, Imagine how Muskoka farmers a century ago felt about having to switch their precious time from livestock and crops to repair public roads. During all the years Muskoka was being opened up, relying on forced labor from farmers who were not road builders was Ontario's archaic approach. <laughs> Talk about downloading. Well, do you have to guess the result? The winding, hilly, washed-out, crude roads of Muskoka were poorly maintained and they deteriorated, especially those in those stretching over wide areas with few statute laborers living near them. Those are reasons Muskoka roads were not just bad, but terrible and too few. One stretch on the roller coaster road between Bracebridge and Baysville was called the Devil's Gap. 
It was a steep slanting hillside of exposed sharp rock. Horses pulling wagons balked. Tires on cars shredded. Another section of the same road was so sandy and sloped it caused automobiles to fall off it, many flipping upside down as they went. In South Muskoka, a Morrison Township road had no edges or ditching, not even stumps for that matter. <laughs> it was not even a built road, simply an unmarked distance across the exposed summit of bald bedrock. There's, there's no end to stories of intrepid motorists attempting to tour Muskoka. No shortage of photographs capturing the raw conditions they gamely sought to navigate. But not all holidaymakers were prepared to risk so much. When other destinations around the province and across North America were rapidly becoming available. As the 1920s advanced, the number of family cars multiplied, then multiplied again. By 1929, more than 473,000 Ontarians owned automobiles, but there weren't even 4,000 kilometers of paved road they could drive on. All those cars and the countless more that just kept coming were delivering huge change. In less than three decades, the internal combustion engine would completely transform Muskoka's vacation economy. Automobiles had many advantages. A family could now set their own timetable, carrying all personal necessities with them, driving directly from city home to Muskoka destination. Car-owning families preferred arriving at their cottage rather than a train station. The 1920s gave more people more freedom than they ever had before. Individuals themselves, not railway companies, decided when and where to travel. Family outings to a beach, a countryside picnic, or road trips further afield. You did not have to be exactly clairvoyant to figure out that if motoring in Muskoka meant facing bad roads, or even no roads at all to primary destinations, that summertime flood of city folk would become a mere trickle. Muskoka's monumental road problem posed an existential crisis. After a short break, let's see what happened with that threat. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. We've already seen the monumental scale of Muskoka's road problems a century ago. So 
what did happen to make the place roadworthy? Well, the larger provincial scene, of course, set the stage. Changes in Ontario's government were inevitable with onset of the automobile revolution, just as they had been required earlier with advent of railways. All across North America, millions of people's lives now entwined with automobiles, building them, selling them, driving them, servicing them, regulating them, building roads for them, enforcing laws about them, renting accommodation and selling souvenirs and supplies to those driving around in them on their holidays. Like most revolutions, this did not occur all at once in one specific place. It was incremental. So let's recap what gradually unfolded. Ontario's first roads were really scarce. Initial settlement by Europeans was around the shores of lakes, following the practice of First Nations. So most travel was by water and over winter ice. Roads were for local use or connecting to another settlement in the vicinity. They were built by settlers, British Army units, and work crews contracted by government. Standards varied considerably. Poor in winter and after rainfall, these rudimentary roads carried riders on horseback and horse-drawn stagecoaches, wagons, and sleighs. Advent of motorized vehicles changed all this. It required superior road development and proper road maintenance. So in 1896, Ontario established an office in the Department of Agriculture responsible for roads and transportation. <clears throat> Heading it up was A.W. Campbell, an official designated provincial instructor in road making. Provincial instructor in road making. Hmm. Four years later, Campbell's role was expanded to commissioner of highways. Even so, the province was still not building roads. Campbell just trained provincial road building instructors, who in turn just established specifications for Ontario's roads, which in the first decade of the 20th century, only ran a total of 90,000 kilometers total. Responsibility for roads remained in local hands. Those 90,000 kilometers were mostly county and township roads. As we know, they were built only when needed and affordable and only maintained by forced free labor. By 1910, the Highway Commissioner's Office handling the Ontario government's sundry roadwork efforts, got a new director when W.A. McLean, the provincial engineer of highways, succeeded A.W. Campbell. A shift was underway. Highways were being seen as projects of engineering rather than matters of agriculture. Next, the industrialization of warfare invented new uses for motorized vehicles of all sorts. In 1916, the third year of the Great War, 
The next step of accommodating the automobile revolution in Ontario was establishing a Department of Public Highways, taking over all functions of the highways branch with a new motor vehicles branch to register and license all motor vehicles, something which, since 1903, the provincial secretary had handled. Next, in 1917, the Highways Department began taking over local highways. First toddler's steps toward a provincial highway network. That year, the legislature also enacted the Provincial Highway Act, empowering the department to construct and maintain highways throughout Ontario. So that's the course we've been on since. What produced these changes, in addition to aiding the war effort, was steady pressure from local entities like the Muskoka Motor Club, and from across Ontario, the well-funded lobbying by the Good Roads Association and the Road Builders Association. The sweetener was that political leaders began heeding the need to upgrade and extend highway construction because the electoral reality was that most voters, the rapidly growing number of drivers themselves, wanted more and better roads, and rightly so. Muskoka roads were so atrociously inadequate that Harmon Rice editorialized in his Huntsville Forester, quote, it is apparent that road making must take on a new form because of the effect of motor vehicles. No longer will the old method of building a mud road suffice to meet the new traffic conditions, close quote. On came 1923's general election. Howard Ferguson led the Conservatives back to power at Queen's Park, ousting the farmers' government. Ontario's new premier was intensely focused on Northern Ontario and its treasure house of resources. In the campaign, Ferguson had promised to build a new highway between North Bay and Cochrane. Construction began almost immediately. Fortunately for Muskokans, this major trunk road running north-south for long-distance passenger and freight traffic also needed good travel routes between the South and North Bay. That is precisely where much of the Muskoka Colonization Road, built in the 1800s from Washago up to Lake Nipissing, ran. The Muskoka Road had been established to develop townships along its route, route as well as new communities. It is still the main street of Gravenhurst, Bracebridge, and Huntsville, which is why Leanne Smith, historian for this road, rightly calls it Muskoka's Main Street. However, in the 1920s, it was very much part of Muskoka's pitiful road problem, still just a narrow gravel strip, far too crooked and hilly to be part of a modern highway, Smith said. That is why the Muskoka Road between Gravenhurst and Bracebridge, in order to serve as a section of the Ferguson Highway, as this new arterial road into the Northland was called, was assaulted by work crews who straightened, leveled, and widened it. 
today's Highway 11. Entering Bracebridge, town of steep hills and rock cliffs, the Ferguson Highway ran an entirely new route that required two new bridges, one across the mouth of the Muskoka River's south branch, another, the Silver Bridge, over the falls on the river's north branch. Then endless dynamiting for a roadway approach around the solid bedrock south side of Bracebridge Bay. That section was later renamed Ecclestone Drive for George Ecclestone, Muskoka's MPP throughout the 1920s. Around Gravenhurst and Huntsville, road sections still carry Ferguson's name. And so the work continued with three-ton dump trucks and rock-cut dynamiting north to Huntsville and beyond, creating a gravel arterial highway for motor travel from Severn Bridge to Cochrane. The entrance to Muskoka from the south had, Cinderella-like, been transformed into a vastly better north-south highway to northern Ontario. And, connecting at Severn Bridge directly to Highway 11, the district was now also on the trunk road to and from Toronto, just as it had so vitally become connected in the steam era by trains. For the age of the automobile, Bad Roads Vacation Land Muskoka had, once again, been resurrected to new life. Now, what about east-west travel in the district? The province still left most road work to municipalities. In 1928, Monk Township Council resolved to build a controversial highway through its fine farmland between Bracebridge and Port Carling. The Reeve, Levy Fraser, who was also a leading Muskoka steamboat captain, championed this cause. He knew firsthand that Muskoka's progress could no longer rely on boats alone. Monk electors narrowly approved a $45,000 bylaw to pay 100 men with 20 teams of horses and six trucks to work all summer. In 1930, another money bylaw was approved to finish the road over to Watt Township and Port Carling. This, said Levy Fraser in the 1940s, was the largest road building job ever carried out by any single municipality in Muskoka up to that date, and marked the beginning of an era of highway improvements that was to continue for a period of years, with the result that Muskoka today will compare favorably with any district in Ontario. In time, the province would take over this highway, numbering it 118 West, only to later turn it back to municipal control. Monk Township continued building roads all through the 1930s, as did other Muskoka townships, both because they were essential for the district to survive in the age of the automobile, and because when the Roaring Twenties turned into the Dirty Thirties and thousands of unemployed men needed Depression-era work, Muskoka's townships and Ontario's government alike funded road construction jobs. Muskoka's longer-term survival as an accessible wilderness vacation land was assured. 
truckers kept on trucking and cottagers kept on a coming. Thank you for listening. Producer for Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka here on Hunters Bay Radio is Jacob Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer.